Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reform Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here at RTS Washington. We teach Old Testament as well. I'm joined by Dr. Paul John, who is the senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church and instructor in New Testament here at RTS Washington. I'm also joined by Dr. Grace Sutanto, Professor of Systematic Theology here at RTS, and our Academic Dean and Professor of New Testament, Dr. Tommy Keene. And we're continuing on in our series. Uh, We've been taking a couple of breaks to do some interviews and talk to other scholars in related fields, but we are continuing in our current series now on the Apostles' Creed, and we're we're down now to that that section underneath the Holy Spirit. We just introduced that last time, and now we're going to look at some of the implications of our belief in the Holy Spirit. And that first article that comes up after I believe in the Holy Spirit is a continuation of that phrase in this other article, the Holy Catholic Church. Okay, and This is, of course, an incredibly important aspect of Christian faith, that we don't just hold to these doctrines in sort of an abstract way, but we hold to these doctrines in the context of being members of Christ's body, of being members of the Holy Catholic Church. Herman Bavink, the Dutch theologian, actually argues that all theology and religion is sort of born out of, is, is, is springs out of the soil of the church. He says, a church is the natural soil for religion and theology. And so what we want to do is talk about the importance of the Holy Catholic Church. And all of these things that we've been talking about so far, this redemptive history that the Apostles' Creed has been bringing us through in this very Trinitarian fashion, framed around the Father and the Son and the Spirit, All of this theology, even the creed itself, springs out of the life of the church. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about how we get to the church from our theology of redemption, from our theology of the gospel. Dr. Keene, would you be able to start us off on that? Yeah, I think so. It's interesting to me, you know, sometimes in our modern culture, we we tend to think of the church as a kind of epilogue to the gospel, as a, a kind of adjunct, um, or e- even worse, especially kind of in a in an American or Western context, we can think that there's the gospel, which is this this way I get saved, this individualistic kind of approach to religion. It's about m- me and my faith in the Lord, and the church is like this club around which you know, certain people have uh, a commonality. It's it's a club for people like me, people who have a similar faith. And, and in that way, an adjunct to what is the gospel or, or a, you know, a, a prophylactic, a help to me in my faith. But that's not how the scripture talks about it. In fact, um, I was thinking about this earlier and, and in 1 Corinthians 15, this famous passage, we talked about this a couple of times throughout our, our series here, because it just intersects with a number of points along the Apostles' Creed, but in 1 Corinthians 15, the very beginning, Paul defines the gospel. He says, this is the gospel that I preach to you, and it actually sounds very Apostles' Creed-like in some ways, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with, with the scriptures. You know, you've got that 
that historical element there that the gospel is Jesus crucified, raised, ascended. This is the gospel. But Paul doesn't put a period there. Like he doesn't say, and he was raised according to the scriptures, period. He keeps going. He says, and that he, the, the gospel that I preached to you, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then to 500 brothers at one time while he was still alive, and then to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born to me. Like embedded in this definition of the gospel is Jesus founding the church, Jesus calling out his disciples, Peter, the other disciples, Paul, etc., and laying those foundation stones that will be the church. And that that is actually a component part of what the gospel is, Jesus establishing his kingdom on the earth through, through the church, through us. That's a great point. This is one that comes up a lot in ordination exams, too, that I hear. You know, it's kind of one of those stumping questions. Can you define the distinction between the kingdom and the church, you know? And, uh, and ordinands often stumble over how to distinguish that, but that's a great, that's a great way of articulating it. The idea that the church is sort of the primary agent on earth for the kingdom of God. This is how God chose. This is how Christ, and according to his good pleasure, chose to expand his kingdom is through the agency and the commissioning of the church. I, I try to highlight that when you're talking about the Old Testament and there's this anticipation of this kingdom coming with this faithful shepherd at the head and his, his retinue, right? The, the, the faithful king and his entourage. And we find this in the Apostles' Creed and in Christian theology when we talk about being of the apostolic faith, that the church is the dissemination of Christ's entourage, you know, and, and their message about Christ over you know, to the world and over the generations. You know, that that's, that's central in the Old Testament. That's central to the kingdom that is to come, the restoration kingdom that is to come. Yeah, and I think we can bring up the four attributes of Catholicity that I think classical reform dogmatics had always attributed, well, classical Christianity, really, that the church is one, because it was raised by Christ himself, we're united by one baptism, one name, the triune name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that the church is also apostolic, that the church has its origins in the early church, and there was a, a particular point in history that we're all rooted in, Yet at the same time, the church is universal, that no matter where you are, no matter what age or location you happen to be in, you're still connected to this apostolic church. And also that the church is holy, it's set apart. And as set apart, therefore, we have a distinct calling precisely because we have this name that we have here. And I think it's really, really useful, therefore, to note that even as Protestants, we believe that we are connected to the one holy Catholic church, that this is a creedal statement of the early church. And as Protestants, we happily confess it. And in recent years, especially, we've really gone cognizant of this fact that when the Protestant reformers were starting the Protestant reformations, they did not call themselves primarily Calvinists or even Lutherans or whatever theologian you might have in mind, but rather they called themselves Reformed Catholics. This was one of the things that William Perkins, for example, had um, emphasized. And scholars like Scott Swain and our own, you know, our own Scott Swain and Mike Allen they emphasize this particular understanding of Reformed theology. Reformed theology is not, therefore, a distinct sect within an original church that we, therefore, you know, kind of broke away from that, but rather we attempted a recovery of the universality of the Catholic Church. And, and Boving has a lot to say about that as well, but I, we wanted to highlight that Protestants 
do own the Catholic Church just as much as any other church tradition. I think Tommy like hit a lot of great points. And one thing I would want to just amplify is many of our listeners or just many evangelical Christians have probably heard Yes, we're very individualistic in our faith here in the West, here in the United States. And I think many would concede that, but at the same time, in reality, we don't understand how much it's infected the way we think. And this is why I think including in the Apostles' Creed, not just I believe in God, but I believe in the church is so important because in my, I think, experience as a pastor, people seem to have an easier time almost believing in Jesus than in the church because of their personal experiences. Uh, They've had very ugly experiences. And so as many of you know, uh, this kind of spirituality has become very popular. Uh, Basically me and Jesus, you know, me and my Bible, me and my personal devotional, right? But, you know, one thing we can find is that like in uh, the apostle Paul's life and his writings, on the one hand, he experienced probably more ugliness uh, from the church than any of us will ever experience. And at the same time, he believed in the church because as Tommy said, you cannot understand what Jesus did without really understanding the centrality of the church. You know, And so I think that this particular topic of believing in the church and then asking what that belief translates to into life is really a worthwhile question to ask. Yeah, a lot of that times is those comments that people have about how they they're spiritual, but they don't believe in um, you know, institutional religion or something like that. I think that comment is often more of a commentary on their perception of the church or maybe their experience in the church. So I think it's a really important point. It's, it's interesting how many Christians, even, you know, proclaimers of Christ, as you pointed out, Paul, don't really have a strong doctrine of the church that, supersedes or kind of overwhelms the reality or, or is the context in which the suffering or the, you know, the, the, some of those bad experiences can be understood. You know, I'm, I'm often reminded of that too. I mean, in my own, I mean, all of us who are working in the church have had experiences with leaders in the church, uh, uh, the reality of ministering to a large number of people who have differing desires and commitments and uh, different levels of sanctification you know, all of the difficulties that arise from being connected institutionally to a, to an organization like the church, we've all experienced the difficulty of that. And yet I find a lot of comfort as a Christian who has a high view of the church and what Christ is doing in it, that even in spite of, you know, some of the abuses that you see around you, some of the difficult relationships and the broken woundedness that arises out of these kind of relationships in spite of that, and maybe even kind of miraculously through it, right? The Lord is bringing about his kingdom. And this isn't new to the church. If you look throughout the whole of redemptive history, um, God is working through broken and wounded people to bring about redemption uh, for the world. And so it's important. It's, it's, I think it's crucial to the Christian and it's crucial to their spiritual growth to be housed in this this organization to be housed in this body that is the body of christ and that's not pollyannish we're not acting as if church or christians are better than they really are but it's recognizing our reliance on one another uh to grow and to uh and to see christ afresh to see christ anew 
And what was really helpful to me as I wrestled with the Catholicity of the church, and I think, Paul, you're exactly right that so many people have trouble with believing in the church because the church is oftentimes not what the Bible paints her to be, right? Because we still struggle with sin. There are all sorts of issues that are besetting us. One of the books that really helped me was Larry Hurtado's Destroyer of the Gods, Baylor University Press in 2016, 2017, that year, I think. Fantastic, wonderful book because he really emphasized how the, the message of the gospel really reshaped the uh, Greco-Roman world precisely because the gospel universalizes the theological message of the Jewish faith and actually argued, therefore, that you don't have to be a Jew to worship Yahweh. You don't have to be a Jew to worship Jesus. You can be uh, a, a pagan. You could be a Gentile and you could be coming in. And at the same time, therefore, it distinguished between religious identity and ethnic identity. It made space for whatever race that you're in, whatever ethnicity you're in, to come into this universal faith without at the same time feeling the need to leave your ethnic heritage, which was really the choice back then. If you were a Jew and you were attracted to a polytheistic religion, you felt like you had to abandon your ethnic heritage, not just your religious identity, but everything else. If you were a Greek and you were a Roman and you were attracted as a God-fearer to the Jewish God, you felt like you needed to leave your cultural heritage as well, all of the rites and pilgrimages and temples that you grew up with and knew about and all the feasts and you had to leave that to get to to get closer to the temple and so on. But now that you have the Christian faith, this is exactly why they were accused as atheists. This is why they were accused as disrupting social order. It was precisely because of all these changes. They were saying, you don't have to be a Jew to be a Christian. You don't have to follow any particular tradition to be a Christian, but you can be welcomed as Christians first rather than your ethnicity first. Right. And I think that was really, really revolutionary. So yes, the church has oftentimes failed to live up to the universality of the gospel that has been preached in the early church, yet at the same time, this has been real. We have historical examples where this really did make lots of amazing changes precisely because the gospel was preached faithfully. So both a reality and an ideal that we have to strive for in this particular creed, portion of the apostolic creed, I mean. That's a great book, Gray, and a, and a great point as well. I. I was reading that book at about the same time, I guess, that you were, um, and was struck by that. And also just the, um, you know, we talk a lot about diversity now, and and it's a good value. It's a good, you know, it's a good thing to strive for, not, not only in the church, but in, in culture. But, you know, one of the things that I think is worth noting here is that in some respects, only Christianity can do that. O only Christianity can can unite us in this way because only Christianity offers a kingdom in which, you know, we each in our own individualistic, each in our, each in our own kind of distinctive, you know, ethnicities and uh, cultures and backgrounds and even personal histories, cultural histories, group histories can find a, you know, in Christ, this, this testimony, this, uh, this truth, this um, this anchor that unites us to one another, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one spirit, one hope, all of that kind of one love, all of that stuff that unites us together, and yet without denying who we are as image bearers and who we are as, you know, distinct uh, people of God and culture groups and, and that God has, that God has fashioned, that God has made and formed and through his providence shaped us as we are and yet 
united under this one banner of Christ as Lord. Yeah, I think that really dovetails into an article that Herman Boving had written called The Catholicity of Christianity and the Church. And That's really what yeah, I was trying to do. I was, I was trying to dovetail into Boving. So I'm, I'm glad that, you, that, you're, that you're taking that. Well, I'm, I'm thankful to know that it's not just my personal little Freudian slips that I get into Boving all the time. But uh, this is actually shared in common between the both of us here, Dr. Keane. Uh, yeah, so in that particular article, he actually argued that Catholicity isn't just a traditionizing principle. In other words, when we think about Catholicity, we think about the way in which we have to be connected to the early church. This is what the reformers meant when they talked about them being reformed Catholics. They were part of the universal church, but that universal church needs reforming, uh, particularly reforming back to the early message of the New Testament and so on, the, the biblical texts and the early church. And Boving said, that's exactly right. We have to believe in the Catholicity of the church, and that does cause us to be traditioned Christians. Yet in time, he argues that Catholicity is also a challenge for creative, transformative work, because the gospel isn't just something that connects us to the past. It also connects us to the present moment, to every culture that's possible here. So here's where he actually criticized Roman Catholicism. He actually argued that Roman Catholicism is a contradiction because Catholicism talks about universality. It could go to any culture, any space, any time, and it would leaven that culture and it would still keep the distinctness of that culture, even as it transforms that culture, which is very unique to the Christian faith. Whereas Romanism implemented uniformity, that this Catholicity is a uniformity implemented by one culture, one tradition, one liturgy, one papacy, one apostolic succession. And Boving argued that's not really Catholicity. In the reform understanding of Catholicity, every culture can take the Christian faith and take it into his own tradition namely his own ethnicity and his own culture. And therefore that particular culture's vision of Christianity could look different from other cultures. Yet at the same time, they're united by the same truth. So it's a unity and diversity model of Catholicity rather than a uniformity model. And I think that's really, again, something that for us to think about because Catholicity becomes both a, an anchor, it's a reality, yet at the same time, it's an ideal. It's something that we have to strive for. And it, it calls us to charitable listening. It calls us to the hard work of contextualization and it calls us to therefore also leave our own prejudices sometime as as new cultures arise and as we think about the present moment new questions would arise and how do we therefore communicate the same universal gospel that is going to be able to communicate to, to be communicated to all these different uh moments in life so i think that's incredibly useful to keep in mind there's an analogy to that on the in the pages of the new testament it's not this it's not the same but we see the new testament church wrestling with that, particularly after Acts 10, with the inclusion of the Gentiles, the, the question becomes, how do we have one church with these two different people? And it's it's more than ethnic. It's also religious. And there's some Old Testament issues to talk about and some redemptive historical concepts to work through. But at the very least, we have the church pursuing this, this oneness, this unity, this radical unity that has never been seen before. Uh, in the in the history of the world and re wrestling through how you know how do how do we do that and the question then becomes how do we have jews in one church without uh, and gentiles in one church jews without repudiating judaism gentiles without repudiating you know their cultural heritage um and so the you know and and the church has to wrestle with that and the answer is of course 
actually the the article that we looked at last time both have the holy spirit both have union with christ through the holy spirit the holy spirit has been poured out on the jew and the gentile and that means one body one church one hope one lord what's interesting uh, you know about this whole discussion is that there's this other kind of diversity that we see in the church of course which is the diversity of theological doctrine you know that we have differing beliefs about baptism things about which we you know reasonable christians can disagree perhaps even about uh the continuation of the gifts or in what way or how how does the lord work extraordinarily today and you can name a thousand of those kind of differences that we see making up the church and it's interesting that you know uh, you know according to people like herman bovink again said we we brought him up a couple of times be so helpful on this you know, Bavink argues that this is the nature of being in the church that is being perfected in Christ, that we, we shouldn't take any snapshot of a particular historical moment, but rather we should recognize that this is all part of this development of the church into what he calls its maturity. I do want to read a little quote here again. This is just from a little farther down in the same paragraph for those of you who want to See this in full. This is on page 86 of his Prolegomena to Reform Dogmatics. Bavink says this. He's talking about how there are differing doctrines. He says, this will be the case. So this is the reality of this diversity of doctrine. This will be the case until, until in Christ the church has attained its full maturity and all have come to unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. He then continues, This unity cannot be reached by force, but can best be advanced if each person thinks through the faith of his own church and makes the most accurate presentation of it. I think it's really interesting. He's talking about this idea of the church maturing to what it will be, right, in the new heavens and new earth. And this is actually, for Bavink, kind of analogous to the way he sees the image of God, that the the image of God itself is not sort of collectively known, it's not known in fullness until the last human is, is born, right? And it's kind of interesting that the church kind of operates in the same way. The church is moving to its unity of faith. It's moving to its maturation, but it won't reach there, right, until the last Christian comes in. And, and I love that idea of the church kind of becoming as the church growing into its fullness. You know, as we're talking about the uh, Catholic church or, or the universal church, I've been thinking about the book of Hebrews, which is obviously Dr. Keene's uh, specialty, but something that I've been struck by is the book of Hebrews like focuses on like endurance in the faith, right? But even from chapter two, when uh, the author says, we must take all the more seriously uh, the word that has been given to us, he immediately qualifies it in terms of the traditions that we received, right? And it's, it's been interesting in many of my seminary classes now, many students have been asking me like what I think about pastoral burnout or like why, you know, like just people leave ministry. And so the question gets at like endurance, right? And um, as a lot of people think through this topic of how we can persevere in the faith, I don't think we think of it, think of it enough in terms of like how we can connect with our spiritual predecessors. You know, Carl Truman has written a lot about this in uh, the creedal imperative. So again, this is why I think this, this particular aspect of the, the creed is so helpful when it says, I believe in the church. We're not just saying, I believe in the church, my local church, 
but we're saying we believe in the church throughout all the ages. And part of that belief, I think a central part of that belief is then studying people like Bobbing, studying the creeds, studying the catechisms, and finding that in many ways we endure individually here and now or with our local body, even as we connect with the universal or the Catholic church. Yeah, I think the idea that the Holy Spirit is illuminating scripture to us today, of course, is very central to like the, the, the notion of Christian doctrine and teaching that I can trust Christian doctrine to be right because the Holy Spirit has illuminated it. And yet at the same time, I should expect you know, I should expect to find error. I have to test it against scripture, of course, because of the reality of sin. But that that reality today of the Holy Spirit illuminating scripture isn't just true today. It's been true throughout history, right? As you say, Paul. And, and therefore, when we go back to the Apostles' Creed, or when I go back to, we quoted Herman Bobbink now three times. By the way, my quote was from page 86, not or 85 rather, not 86. So I need to make that correction. Um, as we read Augustine, as we read Aquinas, we have to remember this is trustworthy, right? Because the spirit's been illuminating scripture throughout church history. And yet we also need to read it in light of scripture, just like, you know, Calvin instructs us to do read it in light of the teaching of the word of God and the kind of people who are saying these things, we should be evaluating them because of the reality of sin also in the church. And so um, we can both trust, trust in the tradition and yet also need to constantly be testing the tradition. Scott, I really liked your point, that point. But I also liked your earlier point about, um, you know, the church growing and maturing and kind of in, in this in this act of becoming. And my head went straight to, uh, well, Ephesians 4, right, that we are growing up into the full knowledge of Christ. That's 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 the goal. But it also reminded me of Ephesians 1, the last verse. Ephesians 1 is this one, this great passage about the indicative of our salvation that culminates in the last verse in verse 22 with this, he says, and he put all things under his feet. That is to say, he put all things under Christ's feet and gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's a really interesting turn of phrase. Like what I usually am expecting there is the church is given to Christ, but Paul reverses it. He says, Christ is given to the church. This is the, the, the thing into which the church is incorporated is Christ, and Christ is head over all things, and then Christ as head over all things is given to the church. That is who we are. We are uh, defined by our union with Christ as head over all things, and, and it's a reminder of what we're growing into we're growing into the fullness of who Christ is and, and what he has done. And that's just this magnificent uh, portrayal of the church. And, and yet, I'm also thinking to Paul John's point, kind of both at the beginning and, and, and the point he just made, so we've got this huge, wonderful portrayal of what the church is. The bride of Christ, it, it, is, it, it is Christ as head over all things. That, that, that is how that reality is expressed here on earth is through church and yet to paul's point we're a broken community and many many of us disillusioned with what the church is and maybe especially in light of some current events it just feels like the church is hard-pressed it's broken it's full of 
uh, sinners and and fallen individuals. We've had leaders that have let us down. Like, how do we get those two things together um, and live life in the church? I, I don't know, Paul, if, if you want to reflect on that too, like how do you talk somebody into or, or remind somebody of the glorious vision of what the church should be in the midst of just the reality of, of our brokenness and, you know, and our pain? You know, it's, it's similar to, I think, the way we should think about death. I know that seems like a weird comparison, but <laughs> death, we should not be surprised by it. And at the same time, we should not be like completely uprooted because of it, you know, like because of the hope we have. And that's why Paul says we should like weep, but like those who have hope. So I don't think it's healthy if like our response to a pastor that falls from grace because of sexual or financial scandal. I don't think it's healthy to be completely desensitized to it and say, well, you know, you can't ever hope in anything, right? Because the Bible does teach a lot about uh, respecting and honoring those in authority and all of the above. But I think sometimes people might become disproportionately disappointed and disenchanted because at the end of the day, like, they don't have a functional understanding of doctrine of sin. The Bible doesn't shy away from, like there are no heroes in the Bible. If you really think this through, um, like every leader falls, right? And so I think this is like the Bible's gentle but clear way of saying, why are you like shocked? Why, as, as if the Bible suggests otherwise. And so, you know, we want to be pastoral about it and not like um, just dismiss people and say, well, you know, like it's not a big deal. And we should be saddened by, uh, especially when leaders fall from grace. And the Bible does say those who lead will be held to a higher, you know, accountability. But I think that if you really have a good doctrine of sin, you can be saddened without being destroyed. And so that that's what I tell people. You know, you know thinking about these things pastorally, is probably one of the harder things to do, particularly, I mean, it's easy to talk about this as a theological doctrine, but this of all of the things we've talked about is one that has sort of the most day-to-day sort of practical outworking, which is how then do we love and care for and advance the cause of the church, right? So let's let's talk about a couple of resources moving forward. I've already cited the Prolegomena to Reform Dogmatics by Herman Bavink. Um, I found his just opening chapter on on the method and organization of dogmatic theology to be super helpful in thinking through how the church or life in the church relates to doctrine and theological formulation. Um, But I know we've had a couple of other recommendations as well. Gray, you mentioned an article by Bob Inc. Can you uh, draw our attention to that? Yeah, it's the Catholicity of Christianity in the Church. Um, was translated by John Bolt in the Calvin Theological Journal, a very fantastic piece, and one of my favorites from Bovink, where he talked about the, the Catholicity's manifold dimensions. And of course, uh, Dr. Mike Allen, Scott Swain's book, Reform Catholicity, and Larry Hurtado's book, Destroyer of the Gods. Uh, I'd add, Ed Clowney's got a book on the church. I think it's called Creatively the Church. And uh, I found that really helpful just as, as one of those kind of theological foundational books. And I'd also just, for those, since, since this podcast tends to serve those in, in ministry at, um, or involved in church work in some way, 
maybe I would take this opportunity. We probably could use a whole podcast on this, but to to cite the value of actually learning administrative and leadership skills. Um, I can't tell you how many pastors, the first thing that they would tell you is that they're not gifted in administration. Um, I, I would be one of those um, as well. And Paul, maybe you could suggest a book here, but you know, the, the value of actually having a good set of basic administration skills in leading the church. And, and uh, for those in Presbyterian circles, you know, do, do not neglect the BCO, do not neglect your BCO and your, um, your uh, uh, book of uh, your, um, what, what am I looking for guys? Parliamentary procedures, Robert's rules. Well, Tommy, you know, I, I really appreciate your comment because um, so in our circles, you know, most of our listeners have probably heard something along the lines of like, the church is not like a business. The church is not a corporation. And probably those comments are coming out of like uh, churches that have become too corporate, but uh, we can almost assume, of course, the church is not a, a business. It's not like a corporation. However, I think that sometimes that can become licensed for uh, just not being prepared in basic managerial leadership skills, right? And so, you know, there are so many good books out there, to be honest, on leadership. But what I would encourage is just as a principle, always recognizing the uniqueness of the church. And at the same time, understanding that there are some basic managerial communication leadership skills that pastors and church leaders would benefit from. And so being able to read these books critically, um, like I make it a habit just to read one leadership book at least a year. And I always, I always learn a lot, you know, from generals that have led battles and things like that. And so I think that that is a very, you know, you can tell, uh, I think that's just a wise um, principle or a suggestion to make, Tommy. Let me close us out then. There's one more that I would recommend. It's it's in, on the related topic of the Holy Spirit, but he ends up getting into a lot of ecclesiology, and that's Sinclair Ferguson's uh, book in the Contours of Christian Theology on the Holy Spirit. It's an excellent Excellent introduction to the doctrine behind these issues, and then really thinking through, you know, what's, what's, what are the implications of the work of the Spirit in the body of Christ? Um, and so I'd encourage that one as well. I look forward to continuing this conversation with the next article, which is the communion of saints, and talking through what are some of the implications of being a part of this transtemporal transhistorical, you know, universal body that is the church and to glean from uh, the work of the spirit, both in the past and in the present. So until then, take care. 